This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The peaceful English village is the heart of so many classic crime stories that it's really a character in itself. Especially pre-1945, a village can be the world in miniature, with its own class hierarchy and rumour mill. And most importantly, a sleepy country village comes with an expectation of calm and of untroubled innocence. Nothing bad could possibly happen here, the inhabitants say to each other. Until the village's resident poison pen gets to work, that is using their missives to expose the undercurrents of vice and malice hidden beneath the serene exterior. Such campaigns of anonymous letters are a staple of classic crime fiction, with writers like Agatha Christie, Dorothy L. Sayers, Patricia Wentworth and plenty more using them as a way of ratcheting up the tension and psychological drama. But these letters are far more than just a convenient narrative device and their damaging effects are not just confined to crime fiction. And that's why today we're diving into the murky, nasty world of the poison pen. Welcome to She Done It. I'm Caroline Crampton. On the surface, the poison pen letter appears to be a trivial thing. Or at least that's how characters in detective novels usually react upon receiving their first one. They exclaim over it at breakfast, perhaps showing it around to their companions and making light of it together. The text itself might be typewritten or handwritten, or even made up of letters cut out of a newspaper or magazine or book. But the key thing is that it will be unsigned and lacking an easy way of identifying the author. The actual message will likely be an accusation of some kind, professional misconduct perhaps, or personal duplicity. Adultery and corruption are popular recurring themes too. In the case of Agatha Christie's The Moving Finger, published in 1942, the narrator receives an anonymous allegation that he and his sister Joanna are not, in fact, siblings, but a couple masquerading as such for some nefarious reason. The pair have recently arrived in the quiet market town of Limstock, hoping to lead a peaceful life while Jerry recuperates after a plane crash. Instead, they are quickly confronted by evidence that there is much more going on in the town than its virtuous appearance would suggest. The poison pen letter was already a familiar enough device that Christie allows these two characters to have a pleasingly meta-conversation about how best to react to this first one. The correct procedure, I believe, Joanna says, is to drop it into the fire with a sharp exclamation of disgust. When her brother proceeds to do so, she applauds him for doing it in a suitably theatrical manner. Yet as the plot unravels further, and the extent of the poison pen's activities emerges, it all begins to seem a lot less light-hearted. 
The Moving Finger goes on to exhibit many classic facets of the Poison Pen campaign. Lots of people in Limstock have been receiving these letters, it turns out, although many have been reluctant to speak about them openly. They destroy them in private instead, fearing that even a suggestion of impropriety will feed gossip that could tarnish their reputation. They're also usually wary of involving the police, since making an official report comes with a certain amount of publicity and investigation. Although public image is a timeless concern, of course, this preoccupation with one's character or good name feels very typical of life in a small community pre-Second World War to me, at a time when a lot of people lived in the same place among the same people for most of their lives. There was little chance of starting afresh or escaping a scandal. No smoke without fire is a phrase that recurs a good deal in this book and many others with similar plots. The idea that the anonymous messages must be based on some kernel of truth, even if the writer is exaggerating or mistaken about some details. This is where we see the uglier side of human nature emerging, as neighbours begin to look differently at each other, purely because of a sly, unsubstantiated suggestion. Gossip and rumour are forces that a poison pen can harness very successfully. Nothing is so corrosive as suspicion. Christie tackled this topic directly in her 1939 Hercule Poirot short story, The Lernaean Hydra, in which the Belgian sleuth helps a doctor who is being targeted by an anonymous letter writer over the suggestion that he murdered his invalid wife so that he could marry his dispenser. The rumours grow like the monster from Greek mythology, with three new ones appearing every time one is cut off at its source. In both this plot and that of the moving finger, Christie skillfully handles the psychological aspect of the poison pen campaign and how those words can become deeds. Unnatural Death by Dorothy L. Sayers from 1927 opens with a not dissimilar scenario to Christie's short story, with sleuth Lord Peter Whimsey learning about the novel's case after overhearing the grumbles of a doctor who has had his professional reputation decimated by rumours that he killed a patient. And E.C.R. Lorick's 1949 book Policeman in the Precinct contains another good example of how powerful ill feeling can become because it features the murder of a small community's malicious gossip, Mrs Maiden. It's true she didn't commit her unkind insinuations to paper, but the sneaky verbal allegations she makes have a similar effect to poison pen letters. Those unpleasant but seemingly harmless missives that get tossed on the fire in disgust are a manifestation of dark, violent impulses, which will twist and grow if left unchecked. That's the psychological appeal of the poison pen letter writer to the detective novelist. It's a way of threading something really horrible through a seemingly bucolic setting, and that can allow for interesting interplay between motive and character. But that's not the only reason why poison pens make regular appearances in detective fiction. There are practical points about these letters too, which allow a writer to give their sleuth some good old-fashioned clue-following to do. At first glance, an anonymous letter might seem like a clueless crime. That is, after all, what the writer intends, and they will have taken precautions to avoid detection. By the time the golden age of detective fiction dawned, the criminological implication of fingerprints was pretty well known, so the writer would wear gloves as a matter of course. Further forensic investigation was still in the future, though, so they need not worry unduly about skin particles or saliva. The composition of the letter itself, though, can be revealing in its obscurity. 
depending on where the cutout letters were sourced from, or if the typewriter can be traced via some typographical idiosyncrasy. I like Christie's little flourish in The Moving Finger, of selecting a dreary book of sermons as the poison pen's raw material. It's clever both because it's a book nobody was likely to look in regularly, and also because the book's moralising content feels very appropriate to its refashioned form. Handwriting, too, can be recognised or analysed, although I think modern investigators are less inclined than Golden Age writers to consider graphology a reliable source of evidence. However, this matters little in stories where the real frisson of the poison pen plot stems from the fact that the perpetrator is known to the victims, among us, all along. I think some of the best practical investigation techniques for a poison pen plot are to be found in The Mystery of the Spiteful Letters by Enid Blyton, first published in 1946. Yes, this is a book aimed at younger readers. It's part of Blyton's Five Find Outers series, which she wrote from 1943 to 1961, and which all feature the crack sleuthing team of Larry, Fatty, Pip, Daisy, Betts and Buster the Dog. But it's also a great poison pen mystery, and one that easily holds its own against plenty of stories aimed at adults. The five find outers are drawn into this poison pen mystery, after Gladys, the housemaid at Pip and Betts's home, receives a letter revealing supposedly shameful information about her upbringing, which in turn causes her to resign from her job. Feeling that this is unfair, the five, and Buster, set out to track down who is sending nasty anonymous communications. A classic concealment job has been done on the posting of these letters by sending them from a nearby town, so the five focus their attention on the logistics of this in order to narrow down the suspects. The bus doesn't run very often, so who could have caught it and still post the letter in time for the midday collection? It's a method that much older sleuths would do well to remember. When you know how, you know who. And there'll be more on that after the break. In History's Secret Heroes, Helena Bonham Carter shines a light on extraordinary stories from World War II. This is a series that tells the tales from the Second World War that are unjustly less well-known than the oft-repeated histories of that time. Personally, I tend to default to the position that military history, or the history of wars as it is usually told, is just not for me. But diving into this series has shown me that I can be wrong about that, and that maybe I just haven't been experiencing the right sort of history. The brand new second series of History's Secret Heroes is out now, and it's absolutely full of brilliant episodes that had me gripped from start to finish. In it, we learn how a single woman, Christine Granville, skied into occupied Poland and gathered essential intelligence for the Allies, which changed the course of the war. We also look at how Raymond Gurem used his circus skills to break in and out of a Nazi internment camp to sneak in food and supplies for his family, and how a young Filipino woman named Josefina Guerrero took advantage of her health condition to join the resistance and become one of the most consequential spies of World War II. I'm especially drawn to stories about code-breaking, as I love puzzles, and to me it often feels like the real-life counterpart to solving a mystery. I loved the episode called The Unbreakable Navajo Code, about a group of Native American soldiers who devised a code for the Allies' use, and I also really enjoyed the one about Emily Anderson, an Irish cryptanalyst who worked both at Bletchley Park in the UK and then in Cairo to decrypt vital intelligence. Helena Bonham Carter voices all of these episodes in a way that makes you feel like they're just being whispered directly into your ear by someone who really knows how to tell a dramatic tale to full effect. There are experts interviewed, but also friends, family members and witnesses, 
so each story feels personal and intimate, as well as historically significant. Episodes will be released on Mondays, wherever you get your podcasts. But if you're in the UK, you can listen to the full series now, first on BBC Sounds. When poison pen letters appear in a detective novel, there always seems to be at least one character who asserts that they must be written by a woman. Poison is a woman's weapon is a cliché of the genre. The same reasoning that lies behind this, that poison doesn't demand the physical strength that other methods of murder require, is extended to the poison on the page. Women are the ones who do the gossiping, or so the thinking goes, so they must be the ones who spread the rumours and send the nasty letters about them. Ridiculous stereotypes, of course, but ones which have become embedded in the classic crime fiction milieu. That idyllic English village that plays host to the poison pen plot always has its fair share of well-to-do spinsters. Women of independent means who have nothing to do except call upon each other, do charity work and pass on the latest scandals. I talked about surplus women and spinster sleuths in the first ever episode of this podcast, and I do think that phenomenon has some bearing here too. Ideas about repression and fixation are often connected to the outbursts of a poison pen, since illicit liaisons and other such misbehaviour are a common theme of such letters. This desire to expose the seedy underbelly of village life and see sinners punished points to a prudishness about sex that is associated in fiction with a certain kind of woman. Although not a poison pen novel, I think Naya Marsh's 1939 book Overture to Death about a village amateur dramatic society is quite informative on this point. It features two older single female characters who exhibit passionate and warped emotional attachments to a vicar. A poison pen campaign brings to the surface a potent cocktail of shame, moralising, prying, spying and piety. Is this really something that women are more prone to? Or is it just revealing that we think so? Male criminals have certainly used this assumption to their advantage across the genre. Dorothy L. Sayers tackled this issue head-on with her 1935 novel Gordy Knight, which is set in an Oxford women's college and features a long-running poison pen campaign by an unknown person from within the institution. From the moment that recurring Sayers character Harriet Vane is asked to undertake the investigation discreetly as a former student, she grasps the reputational damage this story would do to the college if it got out. Soured virginity, unnatural life, semi-demented spinsters, starved appetites and suppressed impulses, unwholesome atmosphere. She could think of whole sets of epithets, ready-minted for circulation, Sayers writes. The novel is a whodunit, but it's a discursive one that spends plenty of time debating all sides of the problem as well, as perhaps is apt for an academically-minded mystery. Women's education at Oxford was still a relatively new concept at the time of writing, with Sayers having been among the first cohort of women graduates to receive their full degrees herself in 1920. Many of the Poison Pen's efforts are aimed at undermining this newly minted status, via references to harpies and crude representations of celibate repressions. The status of the independent academic woman, who pursues her aptitude for scholarship rather than adopting the traditional roles of wife and mother, is still a precarious one. As the warden says, on the question of women's education, even in Oxford, we still encounter a certain number of people who maintain their right to disapprove. 
Class plays a role as well as gender, with much debate about whether any of the college servants would have the vocabulary or the inclination to berate the dons in Virgilian hexameters. This comes up a fair bit in Poison Pen Mysteries, actually. In The Moving Finger, Mrs. Cleet, a local wise woman and the wife of a village gardener, is accused amid questions over whether she is literate enough to be the true author of the anonymous letters. These presumptions often make for a useful smokescreen when the purpose of the poison pen campaign is actually to victimise one individual under the cover of terrorising a whole community. A writer who is genuinely unbalanced might send letters indiscriminately. A criminal impersonating a poison pen will be much more deliberate about it. In Gordy Knight, as the poison pen is able to continue terrorising the college unchecked, Harriet sinks deeper and deeper into the psychological mire of the case, and with good reason, because Sayers develops the connection between vicious words and vicious deeds very ably, as the tension in college rises. A suicide is attempted, a common development in the poison pen mystery, as the poisonous missives do their work upon a receptive mind. Something similar happens in Patricia Wentworth's 1955 novel Poison in the Pen, It's a suspected suicide that results in spinster sleuth Miss Silver being called in to investigate the poison pen outbreak in the village of Tilling Green. The parallel between anonymous letters and the notes sometimes left behind by suicides is neatly drawn. It all comes down to the words. Before I started researching this topic... I thought that poison pens were mostly a convenient trope used by detective novelists to the point of cliché. Like elaborate mechanisms that kill behind locked doors, I assumed they were more common in fiction than in fact. But a swift search through the newspaper archives proved me very wrong. The first half of the 20th century is absolutely full of accounts of real-life poison pen mysteries. Here's just a few headlines to show you what I mean. Poison Pen Letters, Remarkable Story of Wrecked Homes and Society Victims, Pall Mall Gazette, 12th of May 1923. New Poison Pen Mystery, Police Busy on Fresh Clues, from the Sunday Post, 26th of October 1924. Mystery of Scottish Poison Pen, Glasgow Tenants Persecuted, from the Dundee Evening Telegraph, 15th of February 1935. Poison Pen at Work, Husband and Wife Threatened in Letter, from Northern Whig. 12th of March 1928. Paddyham Poison Pen Letters, Vile Communications to Bench Chairman, from the Lancashire Evening Post, 24th of October 1938. You get the idea. There's an excellent article by Curtis Evans that goes into more detail about the real poison pen outbreaks of the 1920s and 30s that I'll link to in the show notes of this episode, so if you're interested in all of the venomous details, I strongly recommend that you read that. And the anonymous letter habit didn't die out when the Second World War started, by any means. Even the quickest internet search reveals news stories about recent and even ongoing poison pen incidents. One from the recent past that especially caught my attention was the case of Manfield in North Yorkshire, which for 12 years beginning in 1987 was beset by an anonymous sender of vile and threatening letters. The culprit, who was eventually convicted in 2001, was one Dr James Forster, a retired academic and local resident. Over those dozen years, it's estimated that 64 of the 86 households in the village received some kind of letter or threat from him. He reportedly spied on his neighbours and pried into their private lives, 
sending letters about matters that irked him, such as the vicar marrying a couple where one partner had been divorced, and the fact that the parish clerk did not actually reside in the village. But lest we be lulled into thinking this was some gentle mystery story, it should also be noted that Forster stalked one woman, sent pornographic material to a teenage girl, and sent another woman a letter that threatened a bombing. In real life, the actions of a poison pen are not cosy at all. One of the earliest poison pen mysteries that I've come across is Fear Stalks the Village by Ethel Lena White from 1932. It's also one of the best, in my opinion, and that's mostly because of how well-drawn its idyllic village setting is. It's, quote, a perfect spot. Viewed from an airplane by day, it resembled a black-and-white plaster model of a Tudor village under a glass case. It looks perfect but the serpent is already in the garden. The poison pen transforms the postman into the herald of disaster, and the cosy certainties of village life unravel as the murders begin. It's the archetypal poison pen mystery. The popularity of the poison pen as a plot device coincides neatly with the golden age of detective fiction, peaking in the years between the First and Second World Wars. Although writers did continue to use it post-1945, and of course the real-life poison pens carry on to this day, the true classics of this niche came in the 1930s and early 1940s. As a literary device, it feels tied to the fate of the tightly-knit communities in which it flourished and which were to be altered forever by the social changes wrought by the war and a more mobile population. After 1945, everybody no longer knew everybody. The village changes. The chilling aspect of the poison pen letter is that it is written by a faceless other, who is also somebody you know. An influx of strangers rather dilutes the effect. This episode of She Done It was written and narrated by me, Caroline Crampton. You can find out more about the podcast and everything it covers at shedoneitshow.com, where there are also transcripts of every episode. She Done It is edited by Ewan McAleese. Production assistance from Leandra Griffith. Member support for the She Done It book club from Connor McLaughlin. Thanks for listening. I'll be back soon with a new episode. <laughs>